I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, lordsofpain.net. Wherever you may be listening, Doc says, Doc says... Uh. This is just what the doc ordered I'm saying welcome They sick of the other shows Chad here to help them The author of the mania era Is bringing terror on L.O.P. radio This is to prepare for the knowledge That he about to showcase Like a bar that you lift His opinions hold weight He wrote a few books And he's working on another for y'all This a five-star podcast Chad, let's get it on Author of the Wrestlemania era The book of sports entertainment And of the doctor's orders On lordsofpain.net Doc says. Hello and welcome to the Doc Says here on LOP Radio. I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, author of the WrestleMania Era book series and of the Doctor's Orders column on LordsOfPain.net. Wherever you may be listening, thank you for making me a part of your day. I have a show for you today loaded with content while remaining committed to the non-Sunday conversation runtime promised a few weeks ago. So let's get right to it with the five most interesting things in wrestling that are on my mind right now. Fighting with my family deserves some attention. Pro wrestling has gained a lot of mainstream acceptance and I probably feel more comfortable admitting to my fandom today than I ever was even during the Attitude Era. People may not get it generally, but mainstream media coverage mirroring the stuff we've seen on the net for the last 20 years and ESPN throwing its credibility to WWE have made things better. The life story of Paige makes things even better. It will not be viewed by that many people, as has become clear, but it's going to be around for a long time, reminding anyone who bothers to watch it what wrestling is really about and the very real hardships that wrestlers go through to achieve their dreams of performing on the 20 by 20 foot canvas. Previous movies about the industry were pretty embarrassing, frankly, doing little but reinforcing stereotypes. WWE's guest host fascination has mostly done the same. The industry needed something like fighting with my family to tell the story of the business, and my goodness, did that movie tell that story well. I felt proud to be a wrestling fan walking out of that theater. And I don't know about you, but being openly proud to be a wrestling fan isn't something I've felt very often during my 30-plus years of being an avid viewer. Kudos to The Rock for bringing Paige's story to life. I've waited a month to say anything about the most recent NXT call-ups, thinking perhaps there was a plan and that the random February debuts were not just more of the same nonsense that has plagued the creative non-process of NXT call-ups since Bailey and Balor advanced to the main roster in 2016. Well, at this point, it seems pretty clear that Vince was just spitballing as usual, but I'll try to put a positive spin on it. Wouldn't it be cool if Ricochet and Aleister Black leaned hard into their tag team positioning on the roster? came up with a team name, got cool entrance music together, and helped stimulate a return to 2017 form for the tag divisions at large on Raw and SmackDown. Given how things have gone pretty much for every other major NXT star once they got to the main roster, it'd be better for them to maximize the chance they've been given than to stick around in mid-card purgatory for an indefinite period, then be defined down by the move to tag team wrestling, 
right now, you couldn't swear that they weren't brought to the main roster to bolster a tag team renaissance, could you? So if they light it up in tag matches that don't feel so random on account of their random call-up as a tag team, then we might at least get a really good year for tag team wrestling for the second time in three years out of this. I guess all that we can hope is that the split second on the toilet that wild man Vince McMahon changed his mind about the relevancy of tag team wrestling will culminate in Ricochet and Black being used to the fullest extent of their talents while in the hypothetically revamped tag ranks. Black and Ricochet teased what a tag team division led by them might could become at Fastlane, which is a show I'll briefly focus on. I thought it was weird, that show. So frenetic that it actually felt more like an episode of Raw from back in the day with so many storyline developments. For future reference with WWE Matters, the less I say about it, the less I liked or appreciated it. I just don't want to make room in my life for their creative non-process anymore. That scatterbrained process did its best to derail anything that Mustafa Ali or Kevin Owens could do to support their babyface pushes on Sunday night, as the Cleveland crowd was practically told, cheer for Kofi and ignore this triple threat WWE title bout. But Ali and Owens combined with Daniel Bryan for one of my favorite WWE matches of the young year. That might have been the best match I've ever seen that had the crowd eating out of the palm of someone's hand who wasn't actually in the match. Aesthetically, only the first Andrade Mysterio match was better when comparing the triple threat to its main roster peers in 2019. A couple of other quick notes. I really don't think the tag division for the women is going to be helped in its building process by Naya and Tamina remaining prominent. That match stunk. They need to pair Bailey and Sasha with a duo who, with, with whom they can tear the house down. The U.S. title match was very good. The Shield reuniting for one final time was very cool. Read Samuel Plan's first reaction column from last week as he summarizes the Shield's final battle perfectly. The Shield have been extremely important to this era of WWE, and it's going to be kind of weird not having them around to come back to. With the Shield having their presumed final match together at Fastlane, and then saying farewell on Monday Night Raw, I cannot help but wax nostalgic on the impact they've had on WWE. The cynic in me, the jaded WWE fan who saw the annual influx of part-timer presence dominate the first week of uninterrupted build to WrestleMania yet again this year, wants to sit here and say that the Shield's incredible success should have been two or three times greater if the show of shows had not become an extension of the Hall of Fame ceremony from the same weekend, a showcase less of the Immortals and more of the retirement home with a bit of contemporary wrestling mixed in. But Rollins, Reigns, and Ambrose collectively and individually have left an indelible mark on this decade in WWE. That is without question. Their combined success is pretty staggering. But Ambrose has always been the third wheel, the Scott Hall to his brothers Hogan and Nash, and there's nobody I want to see in AEW more than Dean Ambrose. I want to see him go there and prove why he should have been treated the equal to his brothers in WWE, and why he should have been given a chance, a fair chance, to push for the top spots that Rollins and Reigns occupied a notch or two or three above him on the hierarchy. We never got to see Ambrose in his presumed sweet spot 
in WWE. That of the maniacal heel who just wanted to watch the world burn. I don't want him to stay in WWE because I don't trust WWE to fully unleash him. And I want to see Dean Ambrose fully unleashed before his prime is over and he becomes one of those stories of, you know who was great but who could have and should have been five times greater? Dean Ambrose. I watched Kota Ibushi versus Tetsuya Naito from the first round of the New Japan Cup. And I'd have to say that my five favorite matches of 2019, well, five of my six, because I think that Gargano versus versus Ricochet from TakeOver Phoenix is on my short list of best matches I've seen of 2019. But five of those six favorites of mine from this year are from New Japan Pro Wrestling. And that Ibushi versus Naito match was really something among those five favorites. The other four, for future reference, are Jay White versus Will Ospreay, which comes in fifth, then Naito versus Jericho, Ibushi versus Ospreay, and Omega versus Tanahashi from Wrestle Kingdom. Ibushi versus Naito, as I mentioned on Twitter, was wrestled like a Tokyo Dome main event or the main event at WrestleMania rather than an opening round contest in the second most important heavyweight tournament of the year. They beat the crap out of each other, and Ibushi in particular took a savage beating to his neck. I'll tell you what, I look back now more fondly than ever on Ibushi's stint in the Cruiserweight Classic in 2016, my last truly happy year as a WWE fan. Daniel Bryan referred to him throughout the CWC as one of the best wrestlers in the world, and I can confirm for you that it wasn't hyperbole. It still isn't hyperbole. The guy is absolutely tremendous. Featuring Ricky Steamboat's look and natural babyface aura and HBK's controlled envelope-pushing athleticism, Ibushi should, in my opinion, be in the main event with Okada at next year's Wrestle Kingdom. Nobody in that company is better than Kota Ibushi, if you ask me. Naito is just as much the man, again, if you ask me, as anyone else in NJPW, so I love him too. He is so, so good. I have come to absolutely admire how truly incredible it is for someone to convey, as Naito does, so much change in character with one simple tweak to a facial expression. It's like he wore a happy mask in 2012 and then replaced it with a tranquil one, wink wink, at some point in the recent past, and I absolutely love it. Just a tremendous performance from the two of them that set the bar very high as my first New Japan Cup match that I've ever watched. So as the old saying goes, please quote-unquote follow that. Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to continued coverage of the March Mayhem Tournament to crown the world's best wrestler. Earlier this week, the Sweet 16 took place, and a few days later was followed by Elite 8 action. We have all the results and recaps here for you today. Let's begin with the round of 16, and an absolutely stellar performance from both. It took 30 minutes for Kenny Omega to back up his top-seeded status and avoid an upset by Cinderella Story Andrade, who channeled his form from TakeOver Philadelphia in January of 2018 opposite Johnny Wrestling, to take the best bout machine to his absolute limit. Counters galore, eventually giving way to correctly connected signature offense, had both men exhausted with a third of the match destined to remain. 
but in the end, it was a desperation one-winged angel that felled the underutilized SmackDown star. In the Elite Eight, Omega will meet Finn Balor, who continued his run of seated-based upsets by taking down Will Ospreay in a 23-minute classic. The third-seated Ospreay looked like he would back up his seating several times, but the smooth-as-silk Balor kept getting out of harm's way. Ospreay kicked out of the coup de grace for the first time, but not the second. Sticking with the left side of the bracket, the injury suffered by Kazuchika Okada at the hands of Jay White after their second round bout proved the Rainmaker's undoing in the Sweet 16. Fifth-seeded Daniel Bryan knocked off the top seed with a heel hook despite a valiant effort by Okada. Bryan was relentless. Okada did a great job accepting the ground-based game he was forced to play, but he could not plant well enough on his injured leg to hit his finisher, and Bryan took advantage. The current WWE champ will face another modern Japanese legend, Kota Ibushi, in the next round. Ibushi defeated Marty Skrull in a 20-minute battle with the Kamigoye, but Skrull had executed a fairly successful game plan until the climax saw him lose the control he'd sustained through the first three quarters of the match. One critic in attendance called the performance smart as hell. All due respect to fourth-seeded Cody in the Johnny Wrestling Regional, he looked a little out of his depth trying to keep pace with the number one-seeded Gargano, who controlled the pace and never really let him get out of the box in a 12-minute match that he won via submission. Domination turned into the theme of the Sweet 16 in that quarter of the bracket, and unfortunately for second-seeded Hiroshi Tanahashi, he was the one being dominated rather than dominating. Sixth-seeded Walter steamrolled his way to the Elite Eight, chopping Tana's chest to minced meat before finishing him off with a devastating lariat. The final participants in the Elite Eight from the Blackheart Regional will be second-seeded Seth Rollins, who barely escaped Zack Sabre Jr., and Austin Aries, whose last chancery submission on Tommaso Ciampa's injured neck was too much for the one seed to handle in his weakened state. ZSJ and Rollins challenged for the match of the round with their intriguing mix of classic modern pro wrestling and submission-based styles. Rollins lived up to his original nickname, The Architect, settling into a well-scouted understanding that he'd spend much of the match tangled up and thus picking his spots quite wisely. One of the things that I intend to do on this show moving forward is examine other products. Those who know me well understand and hopefully appreciate my at times rabid historical desire to analyze pro wrestling lore. I wrote nearly 600 pages dissecting the greatest wrestlers in WWE history in my first book and another 450 breaking down the greatest matches and rivalries in WWE history. This decade has therefore been in part dedicated to learning about the WrestleMania era, in and out, and that also includes NWA slash WCW history. I've done that to the point that everything that WWE does moving forward will, for better or worse, do so in my mind within a certain context in comparison to that which it has already achieved. For promotions like New Japan Pro Wrestling, Everything is new to me. I haven't been a new fan of a promotion, not been in a position to dive headfirst into what it can offer me as a fan in such a long time. I grew up watching the NWA turn WCW 
and the WWF turned WWE. That was 30 freaking years ago. To sit down, unpack my New Japan Pro Wrestling NJPW World subscription and just pick a starting point and go? That's practically virgin territory for me, especially as an adult. I recently finished my first historical exploration of New Japan with the first year that I really dedicated myself to being 2012. Uh, why that year? Honestly, it was because of Kazuchika Okada. His story fascinated me. He was an also-ran in TNA, and he was an also-ran at a time when I had long since written off TNA as something viable and important in the big picture of pro wrestling, however unfair that opinion might have been. Okada showed up in New Japan in January 2012 and was IWGP heavyweight champion by the end of February. To me, that was a crazy story. That's not Jinder Mahal winning the WWE title after being a jobber for eight months, but it's comparably nuts to me. For all intents, that seemed like a recipe for failure, right? So how did Okada become what he's become? The other top guy in the promotion, and so beloved across the world by diehard wrestling fans, when he was pushed from obscurity straight to the top. I needed to figure that out in my head and see it for myself. He took the title from another guy whose reputation I needed to understand, Hiroshi Tanahashi, the ace or the man in NJPW lingo. My former LOP colleague turned successful what culture writer and NXT book author Sidgwick told me early in my New Japan deep dive that he felt Tana was the greatest pro wrestler ever. Others compared him to Shawn Michaels. By the time I had ordered my NJPW World subscription, my only Tana match had been against Jay White at Wrestle Kingdom 12, which flat out bored me out of my mind. Turns out, that was like your first HBK match being against Chris Masters. No offense, Jay, you've gotten better, dude, but a year or so ago, it was not up to snuff. So imagine that HBK was the top guy in a company that was beginning to get its mojo back economically. He's in his prime, mid-30s, and developing the reputation of an all-timer, when along comes a 25-year-old Seth Rollins, who's got something undeniable that a promoter sees that nobody else has yet had the chance to see. That's frankly how I've best articulated in my mind the scenario that Tana faced when Okada showed up. Tana was very much the ace, having by my account settled a rivalry with Shinsuke Nakamura during the late 2000s to earn the title of New Japan's leader. I don't want to gloss over that Nakamura part by any means, and I'll probably revisit that down the road. Nevertheless, Tana had just headlined another Wrestle Kingdom, defeating Minoru Suzuki in a very characterful performance with a very different kind of style than a lot of the other Tana matches I've watched since. And a month later... He's chasing the title. At that point, around the waist of this new kid, Okada. Granted, Tana is still the ace, and there's no disputing that, but Okada made the absolute most of his chance. He was ready. New Japan presented him ex just absolutely excellently, sending him out in the Rainmaker gimmick, covered in gold jewelry, with money coming down from the ceiling during his entrance, and he delivered when the bell rang. Okada ended up facing a young Tetsuya Naito, himself trying to break into the upper echelon in 2012, in 
what in my opinion is the absolute best successful title defense of his first reign as IWGP champ. I just wanted to make quick mention of that match because it was such an awesome performance as reflected in the NJPW 2012 Top 10 match list I posted on LOP uh, right before posting this podcast. Quick aside, I would consider Tana, Okada, and Naito to be the three Japanese stars that have defined this decade for New Japan, at least at the very top of the card. And only Naito is vastly different today from what he was in 2012. He's got this dorky, aw shucks quality in 2012, but when you watch him today, he looks like a different person just on account of his facial expressions, as I mentioned in an earlier segment. All of that from an attitude change. That's pretty damn cool in my opinion. It bears reiterating. It's like seeing Orton in 2002 as a rookie, and then seeing him again in 2009 as a pathological master of the facial expression. Obvious difference being that Naito was capable of match of the year in ring work even then. His story is the next one I'm most intrigued to watch as it plays out across this decade. How did Naito not become a legit challenger to the throne practically jointly held by Tana and Okada? That's a story I'm interested to follow. Anyhow, back to Tana and Okada. Their match at Dominion 2012 was far more so than their new beginning match that crowned Okada the champ. An obvious example of the battle for number one that was close at hand. At Dominion, they tore the freaking house down. Truthfully, folks, you really don't need to know anything about either of them or know a drop of Japanese if you can only find it with Japanese commentary. And you'll struggle, in my opinion, to disagree with Okada Tana being one of the best wrestling matches at least of this decade. Personally, I favored the Okada Naito match as the best of 2012 in NJPW, but I think that opinion could be altered on every side-by-side replay. If you ever find yourself saying, I really don't get the Tana and Okada love, just watch their Dominion match in 2012 and I think you'll get it. Trust me. Two Tana matches in 2012 really blew me away, and that was one of them. The other was against Suzuki a few months later, focusing on Tana for a bit longer, He really won me over with those two Suzuki fights, particularly. He's got a formula in the ring, and it's earned him wild critical acclaim. And if I might make an honest analytical observation, it'd be that in 2012, his best work according to the masses, and not Chad Matthews, had about a 50% tendency to adhere too strictly to his formula. But against Suzuki and Okada in the aforementioned efforts, He broke protocol, and it was wonderfully engaging in each instance. I'd probably give him a share of my NJPW MVP award for 2012 with Okada, and I give Okada that distinction because of the matches not only with Tana and Naito, but also with Carl Anderson. I think Anderson's run to the G1 Climax Final was the most surprising thing that I saw in 2012 from NJPW. And on the flip side, I'm going to give... The most disappointing thing that I saw to Nakamura, who just hasn't really impressed me yet, and I'm coming to believe that the success of his match with Sami Zayn at TakeOver Dallas really had more to do with Zayn than anyone was willing to admit back then. That said, Anderson was a revelation. Who that has watched him since joining WWE could have guessed that he had a match in him the quality of the G1 Climax Final? I don't see how you could. 
the most memorable thing that Anderson has done on WWE TV since his debut three years ago is be an amusing part of the Southpaw Regional Wrestling spoof videos. To see Anderson out there with his machine gun nickname and corresponding attitude and mannerisms was to see something night and day from anything we've seen from him during his WWE run to date. I just wanted to make special mention of Anderson because I really thought that highly of his matches with Nakamura and Okada in the G1. That was a marvelous surprise and the kind of thing I'm loving about this new wrestling fan experience I'm having. The junior heavyweight division admittedly didn't catch my attention really until the end of the year that year when competing as its title's primary combatants were Kota Ibushi, pretty much my guy in New Japan after being completely wowed by him in the Cruiserweight Classic in 2016, Loki, who was the other half of a match I watched on a TNA weekly pay-per-view in August or September of 2003, featuring also the phenomenal AJ Styles, and those two actually redefined at that very moment, back in 2003, what I thought a pro wrestling match could be, and then Prince Devitt, otherwise known as Finn Balor, my favorite wrestler of the NXT generation not named Seth Rollins. Their matches did not crack my top five for the year, but they were just the kind of mid-card matches I love to watch with a distinctly different role to play in the ring than the main event, that role being to help make the show rather than try to steal it. I can imagine Shane from All About All Elite digging those types of matches, or at least finding a better appreciation for them on account of their relative simplicity. By the time we got the, the, to the following Wrestle Kingdom, all these guys were ready to take another step forward in their careers, so I thought them definitely worth mentioning in the 2012 review. In the end, though, 2012 in NJPW was all about Tana and Okada. To me, it gets no better in pro wrestling's main event scene than two guys at the top of their games coming off huge years that made people argue about which of them was the company MVP, then facing each other in the main event of the biggest show of the year. And that's what happened in 2012, heading into Wrestle Kingdom in January 2013. Tana had an awesome year, and he was the IWGP heavyweight champion. Okada had also had an awesome year, and he had won the G1 Climax, giving him a title shot at Wrestle Kingdom 7. The Ace versus the Rainmaker for all the marbles. Be still my fandom's beating freaking heart. I can't imagine being able to transition to a new year or a new season any better. Welcome back to March Mayhem, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get straight to which wrestlers punched their ticket to the Final Four, held this year in the Tokyo Dome. The Elite Eight action that led us to the Final Four saw Kenny Omega advance past Finn Balor, with the best bout machine living up to his top overall seed status, with a fast and furious match that ended with the one-winged angel in just past 16 minutes. Omega was very aggressive and successfully executed his plan to keep the match short after having the longest match of the tournament to date in the Sweet 16. He will meet Daniel Bryan in the Final Four. The fifth seed from the Rainmaker Regional knocked off second-seeded Kota Ibushi in an outright match of the year candidate. The running knee smashed Kota in mid-Golden Star Moonsault to the outside attempt, turning a tide that had initially seemed to favor the Japanese superstar, whose striking aerial games were on point through the first 12 minutes. Ibushi nearly endured, landing his standing knee strike, but he fell into a cover that had his own shoulders pinned to the mat simultaneously with Bryan's, causing the referee to wave off the pin. 
The match continued, with Brian landing a roundhouse kick to the temple that fed right into another running knee and a label lock for the tap-out victory over an exhausted Ibushi. Across the bracket, Johnny Gargano survived, literally survived, his match against Walter to make the Final Four. Walter pretty much destroyed him, but give credit where due. Even though a count-out win isn't the most glamorous tournament result, a win is a win, and Gargano deserves props for his creativity. A referee's 10 count is faster than a big guy with a large cable tied around both his foot and the steel entrance set. Gargano will meet Seth Rollins in the Final Four. Rollins advanced past Austin Aries in a great match. Aries pulled out all the stops, but Rollins proved incredibly resilient. The last chancery was nearly locked in, but Rollins countered out and got the win shortly afterward with the stomp. So it'll be Rollins versus Gargano, arguably the best of WWE and NXT, in one world semifinal. It'll be Brian versus Omega, the top overall seed against a dream opponent in the other. Who will win? Tune in next week and find out. Last but not least, before I sign off, please check out the rest of our lineup on LOP Radio. In my humble opinion, no podcast network offers better variety or more diversity in topics. On Mondays, talking about professional wrestling from the tip-top companies to lesser-known entities, it's Kingdom of Honor, hosted by LOP Hall of Famer Zanman. Tuesdays, the lesser-known pro wrestling organizations get the full spotlight as Jeff and Miz Fan host the Global Revolution. Available on Wednesday mornings, check out our weekly Raw and SmackDown reviews on One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. Then Wednesday afternoons, check out Samuel Plan's unique performance art take on the product with Sports Entertainment is Dead. Thursday, The Implications keeps the British flavor going with his weekly takes on the Perfect 10 Wrestling Podcast. Friday, it's LOPR's longest-running program, the one that has been here since day one and has kept on trucking for over a half-decade and counting, The Right Side of the Pond, hosted by Plan, Maverick, and Mazza. Saturday, the brilliant podcasters that brought you WCW The Legacy Series, Shane and Mizfan, are now all about All Elite. Then Sunday, you can catch my show, The Doc Says, in the mornings. Thanks again for listening, and have an awesome week, LOP Radio Heads. This is just what the doc ordered them, saying welcome. They sick of the other shows, chat here to help them. The author of the mania era is bringing terror on LOP radio. This is to prepare for the knowledge that he about to showcase. Like a bar that you lift, his opinions hold weight. He wrote a few books and he's working on another for y'all. This is a five-star podcast, chat, let's get it on. Author of the WrestleMania 